We've all heard of the Mona Lisa. In fact, my 10-year-old son even knew who she was and who painted her. And let me qualify this by saying that we do not have various pieces of art around our house. Um, and we are not typically going to art museums. So he just learned that by just existing in the world. This famous painting that thousands see each year is valued at, get this, $870 million. So for almost a billion dollars, you can get this painting of the small size of 30 inches by 21 inches, or about the size of an extra large pizza box, which is not as grand a scale as da Vinci's other works of art. That's the most famous painting on earth, but there are thousands of paintings worth millions and millions of dollars. Google estimates that the art in all of the museums and all the private collections around the world is worth over $3 trillion. To put that in perspective, that's like the equivalent of the GDP or gross domestic product of the United Kingdom and a little less than that of France for artwork. Hey, I'm KDO, your host for Curious KDO. And in this podcast, we delve deep into all of my curious thoughts. And trust me, they are as random as I am. If you're like me and are curious about a thousand things, I'd love to get to know each one of you. So remember to hit subscribe and feel free to comment and share your thoughts. Art is a crazy thing. You know, we are all artists when we are children and drawing is how we express ourselves before we have words. We use lines and circles and squares and swiggles to tell a story or convey a message. And we encourage or even require art and drawing in school through fourth or fifth grade. And when you think about it, drawing has always been part of our culture from ancient hieroglyphics to modern day emojis, this idea of images replacing words. And art has become a bridge between languages, allowing people to share an idea or a theme from a thumbs up to a smiley face or even like an eggplant, which we all know what that means. And if you don't, don't Google it. So unless you've, you know, head down the path to become an artist and you elect it, there is a point where you know, it becomes a choice to continue to do art. And you either keep exploring or learning or you put down your crayon or your chalk or your paintbrush and you walk away. There are studies that show that drawing helps with self-confidence, concentration, even problem solving and memory. So why do we stop it at the age of 10 or 11? When the system that we learn from focuses on other practical applications like math and science, Unfortunately, oftentimes the first things that get cut are the arts. And what message does that send to artists? And if kids were to ask about it and get a little curious, you know, kids would probably say that we have museums for art that can last centuries, but no one has ever paid good money, as far as I know, Sheldon Cooper, to go to a building to look at math problems. There's something about the connection to art that is important in our life that we dismiss so easily. At that young age, art is a representation of something else. Does it stand for creativity and expression before children are capable of articulating things in words? How would kids share their ideas and stories to paint a larger picture without drawing before they have all of the language that they need? To quote Ken Robinson, who's one of the best TED Talks still to this day, um, who passed away not that long ago, and someone I actually got to see live twice when he was in my city, he says a lot about creativity and art and learning. And here's a quote of his. We don't grow into creativity, we grow out of it. Or whether, 
but rather that we're educated out of it. So think about that. When it comes to art and creativity, you're all born with the ability to be both. And sometimes our systems are set up to educate that out of us. I would totally recommend checking out his TED Talk if you want to laugh and be inspired at the same time. And especially for those of us who never really fit into the traditional model of education, it's enlightening to see what might have driven that. Now, I mentioned being that I'm not a lover of art, but here's the funny thing. I always took art in high school and my senior year of college, I took an art 101 class with like real artists, like students who were going to make their life's work in art and me. So why? Why, why would I do that? Because I knew that my ability to not only write, which I love to do, and share a story was going to be important in my job, whether that was marketing or advertising or communications or wherever I ended up. But that understanding of how to sketch an idea or communicate something visually was equally important to being able to communicate with others what I was thinking. I will tell you to this day, I marvel at my graphic designer on my team who could take my random sketches and piece together ideas and make something amazing from it because what she gets for me through my sketches is so rough, but she gets what I'm trying to communicate through those visuals. I also took art because I like drawing and painting. Um, I once created a painting for my husband as a gift and um, I spared him from being the model in that instance, um, but I often used him as my model for inspiration, like a Renaissance painter found inspiration from bowls of fruit. Um, he was often my inspiration for my drawings for my college art class. But this painting I did for him, and it was a gift, and I did it, uh, he and I, on a place that we had walked many times. It's a little wooded area that was secluded and quiet and peaceful. We had had picnics there before, and the drawing and the painting that I did was just the back of the two of us kind of looking from behind, coming up behind us as we were sitting there looking out over the river. And it's a memory that I had that we shared. And so whether it was pencil or chalk, you know, I drove headfirst into my college art class and took every assignment seriously. And the thing that surprised me is it often took me more hours to complete my art assignments than it did the assignments for my actual major. I ended up getting most improved in the class, which I took to be the sticker you give to the worst player on the team, but who always claps and cheers really loud and you give them this ribbon at the end of the banquet. Um, but for me, it was about improving and taking the time and taking it seriously. And I didn't realize until I got into it how much work it was. And as a side note, of, of course, I'm going to share a story about my art class um, as an adult when I was in college. And there's a day that sticks in my mind, you know, 25 plus years later that I can picture down to some pretty small details. So the class we had, it met Mondays and Wednesdays in the morning for three hours. So six hours of art plus working on the homework. It was a big time commitment. And what we would do is we would start by doing 30 minutes of warm up. So you'd have your pages and then you'd do an hour of a longer drawing, maybe 20 to 25 minutes. And then you'd take a break and you'd come back and you'd do like an hour and a half drawing. It allowed you to play with forms, ideas, shapes. It allowed you to practice quickly getting an idea out and then transitioning to really spending some time on the details when you get to focus. It's a great exercise really, and one that I should probably do more often um, when I was going through and writing and thinking about this. So about in the middle of the semester, we had two weeks where we were gonna draw newts. And so for three of those four days, 
that we were drawing nudes, we had a female student stand and pose for us, making what I really hope was good money for her. Um, college student, you know, somebody that actually lived in my dorm freshman year. It didn't feel really awkward or weird. And after a while, you kind of got used to a bunch of kids sitting in a room staring up at a naked woman. They say that the female form is like a landscape. And when you start to think of the curves and the valleys like that, you can quickly capture the essence of, of what it really meant to be female. And so we drew her for three days in a row and came back on the fourth day expecting to see her again. But on that last day of nudes, this young lady was nowhere to be found. Instead, at the front of the room was a guy who looked about 40 with a super clean cut brown hair swooped over to the side, a rounded face and a tight brown mustache. He had on a robe and he was milling around in the front of the room by the stage where we had a wooden table slash chair that the models would sit on or use when they were posing. So we all got out our paper and our pencils and sat in our art chairs with the easel combination and got ready to start drawing. Now, when I tell you I can remember this guy, I mean, like, I can remember details and specifics that you tried not to look at, but couldn't help but see. So first of all, you stepped onto the stage and the teacher gave us our first assignment. Try to get, you know, three to four drawings in the next 30 minutes. Sketch some portions of the form, try to get a, a story, try to get something out. Okay, got it. Then he takes off his robe, and I think this entire class gave a collective, like, what is going on? And depending on how close or how far away you were, I think that gasp of, was a little bit different for each person. So if I were to describe this gentleman to you, I would start like this. Remember the hair that I mentioned on his head and the mustache that he had on his face? Yeah, that was it. There was not a lick of hair, not a follicle anywhere on the rest of his body. Okay. So your eyes kind of wandered down the form. You're trying to get a feel for what he looks like. And you get to the middle part of his chest and notice that there's a piercing popping on each nipple. Okay. That's a strategy you're taking. That's a way you're approaching things. I'm thinking that's the last piercing I'm going to see. No. So my eyes go further and further down and I get to his piece of equipment that had its own piercing at the end, like the ring through the bull's nose that you would find in an arena. That was something. And his piece of equipment was something to behold, let me tell you. So we started to draw. Okay, the class like buckled down, started to draw. And it was a little awkward because you'd look up and he would be staring at you. And he'd be reclined or he would maneuver things in a certain way and make adjustments. So what you tried to do is you tried to focus on parts of the body that you could, like an arm, an ear, a face. You're trying to capture every line or shadow. And after about an hour, the teacher gave us and the model a break. And I remember being out in the hallway and the chatter that occurred. You know, where was this landscape figure we drew before that never caused any discussion? This guy who entered the studio caused a flurry of half sentences and starts and stops. And, you know, people couldn't articulate like what they were seeing and feeling. And guys tried to share how uncomfortable they were, but they couldn't quite get it out. And a couple of them were like, I, I, I can't draw that anymore and just got up and called it a day. So here's the best part. When I got done, for the day with my classes. I was carrying around my portfolio. Um, and I actually shared a house with two guys named Mark, who at the time were both dating two girls named Michelle. So Mark and Michelle, Mark and Michelle. 
So for the last few days when I got home from class, they were always like, oh, what'd you draw? And as I was drawing nudes and, and ladies, they were interested. And so I thought I would surprise them. So when I got home, I told them, I said, hey, let me just set out like the drawings. It's the last day. You know, tell me what you think. And so I laid out the drawings, like, you know, a couple of images, some detailed, some rough. And I said, hey, take a look. And I remember one of them pointing at the image and going, what is that? And my response was, that is exactly what you think it is. And they said, why is it that big? And I said, because that's what it looked like. And that was 25 years ago. That is my art experience of what it's like when you have those moments in art where you're drawing something and having to work through challenges and muscle through. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that for some people, art is memorable when they create it or experience it. And for me, that's always been a part of my self-expression. But I will be honest, I have never really been that interested in other people's art, like masters in museums. You know, I did read the biography on da Vinci um, as a solid for my coworkers. My boss loves art. He loves reading. And so when he discovered that book as an art guy, he was like, oh, my gosh, this is a great book. It's like five to six inches thick. So it is not a small story. And I decided to be able to talk to him about it and understand some of the examples he was giving. You know, I read the entire biography. And I wanted to understand what he saw from this as an art lover and what I would pick up from it as more of an interest in people's journey. You know, did you know that da Vinci was famous for the curls he did on people when he was an apprentice to other painters? Like that was his thing. He was known for his curls. You know, I did learn a lot, like how much he carried the Mona Lisa around and tweaked it over and over and over again, never quite getting it finished how a lot of the paintings he did was just because he had to eat and was hungry and created these great masterpieces, or even how he got bodies from the morgue to dissect their faces and see and experience the muscles that make a smile or a frown. He was like an odd dude. But outside of like da Vinci, Michelangelo, Bernini, you know, all these great masters from centuries ago, there are more painters that are modern, like Picasso or Andy Warhol, that took a completely different direction in their art, playing with, you know, their imagination, shapes, colors, forms. And I will tell you, there is no way I would pay $180 million, which is what someone paid for a Picasso, or $195 million for a Marilyn Monroe Andy Warhol painting. I'm not saying that even close to that, so it's like not an option. So I'm not buying something I can't afford anyway, but if I was like a multi-billionaire, I still couldn't see paying that much for paint on a canvas, no matter who drew it. So why would someone pay that much for art? You know, of course, I have a few theories. The first is status, okay? Wealthy people love status and nothing says that you rank higher in the rich guy or gal next to you than owning something that only one of them exists on the planet. Like, there aren't 10 Mona Lisas floating around. There's one. Like, with a lot of other pieces of original art, there may be a drawing or sketches leading up to it, but the valuable artwork is the one that was created, captured for that moment in time, and you can be the only one who has it. And if you assign it value and others assign it value, then it's valuable. When the rich look for new ways to show their wealth, whether buying companies, sports teams, yachts, Art continues to be a piece of status that many millionaires buy to show their importance and that they've made it in life. It's a legacy that they can pass down and it's a daily reminder to them and anyone that enters their home 
of how much money they have. People like Paul Allen sold his art collection for 1.6 billion. You know, founded Microsoft, check. Owned the Seattle Seahawks and the Trailblazers, check. Buy tons of art, check. You know, Eli and Edith Broad, anyone who went to Michigan State or graduated, go green, that the business school in East Lansing is named after him. He has a $2 billion art collection. So whether adding your names to buildings, hospitals, universities, art is just another lasting piece of the legacy that these famous wealthy individuals seek out. So say you love art and it's not status. You could just love art. You know, maybe it's an artist or a type of art that makes you smile or makes you cry. Something that draws you in, makes you feel something deep down inside in a way that music might for others. It could tell a story that connects with your story or draws something out of you to help you dive into somebody else's world. This is the part that's lost on me, I'll be honest. I've listened to music and felt something, but I've never looked at a painting or a drawing that an artist created and felt connected to it. But I understand that others have. I remember watching a documentary about a couple in New York with a little apartment and they would purchase art from all the local and up and coming artists. They just loved this certain type of art, certain styles that were around these couple of decades. And the artist spoke in the documentary about how this couple helped them with rent and food when they bought a painting or a sculpture or something specific. And the documentary was about their collection and what happened when a museum helped them remove all of the pieces stacked and stored around their apartment that told the story of all of these modern artists. So Herbert and Dorothy Vogel was their name. And after donating their collection that they loved and collected over decades to the National Gallery of Art, which they did that one so people could see it for free, this couple made up of a civil servant and a librarian they took Herb's income of around 30000 a year to buy art and had a collection worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And they did it for the love of the art. Dorothy's quoted as saying, "All above all, the rewards we got from collecting is knowing the artists and understanding them. They wanted the why behind the art and were lucky enough to meet many of the artists that later became famous. So for them, it was about the love of what they were collecting. So if it's not status and it's not love of art, could it be the buying and selling like any other item that draws people to art? Buy, hold, hope it goes up in value, then sell. Kind of like stocks on the stock exchange. It's playing with money. Lots of money in artwork and betting on the artist or a piece of art to have future value or grow in value is like betting on a horse race or a football game. You know, for some, is it really about that investment or that stake in that investment? And with online auction houses, more wealthy individuals can now partake in the blackjack table where the chips are millions and the cards become the artwork. And they're pulling these pieces together to try to create some winning hand collection. Could the status of making a huge bet that pays off be the excitement for a buyer with lots of cash and nothing else to spend it on? You know, does the art become the vessel? Does it become fun and transactional? So if I were to quote Degas, he says, art is not what you see, but what you make others see. Or to quote my son, when I asked him, what do you think art is? He said, when you're drawing, and I swear this is true because I wrote it down. When you're drawing, you're thinking of something and it uses your imagination to share what you're connected to. I mean, that sounds pretty good to me. I think the kid's got a little bit of artist in him. So I guess we haven't educated the art out of that one yet. 
But whether you're the artist or you're the admirer of others, you know, what role does art play in your life? What is art to you? And what does it mean when you see something that was created in someone else's imagination that you get to now experience? There are so few things in life where you get to peek behind the eyes of another person and wander around in their brain. And I hope as a society, we continue to value that which we can't measure or quantify, but the things that we feel. I still don't know why people would pay millions for paper with paint or pencil on it. They obviously have value and meaning, something we hold on for centuries, studying and learning, maybe never truly understanding. But maybe that's the point. Not the value or what someone pays for the art, but what it means to them or you. And to quote Leonardo, there are three types of people. Those who see, those who see when they are shown, and those who don't see. I wonder which one you are. Love to connect with you. Feel free to reach out via email at curious.kdo at gmail.com or at my Instagram, curious underscore kdo. Until next time.